0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Development Hell. every horror movie that hits vod countless others end up doa development hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions we're gonna find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light i am your host josh corngut i am the managing editor of dread central i am also a filmmaker in toronto canada this podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today we are tackling one of the most infamous cases of a horror film trapped in development hell, and that is Guillermo del Toro's never-made big-budget adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. This is an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, so that means it's already going to be difficult to achieve, and it's also a Guillermo del Toro adaptation, and there are just so many awesome Guillermo del Toro projects stuck in development hell. And we appreciate that. Today we are going to use some information from the KingCast, IndieWire, and Wikipedia. So check out our show notes if you want more information. We have with us today a very exciting returning guest judge. We have Drew Tennant. He is a staff writer here at Dread Central and just a really important voice in horror journalism. So we're excited to have him back. Drew, how's it going?
2: It's going well. I'm glad. I'm glad somebody thinks I'm an important voice in. And- horror journalism that's you are i appreciate Um. that i've I've definitely been doing in a while so if, if that counts for something
1: i think it definitely does drew can you do me a favor and in case anyone's forgotten can you reintroduce yourself to the development hell audience absolutely yeah um
2: well let's see i started um in the horror space um probably like over 10 years ago when i was in new york i started working for fangoria and did uh their show Fangoria Radio, which is which is a, a real blast. We had Guar in studio and did all kinds of fun things, and uh, wrote for Fangoria for a while. Then um, came across Dread Central. I did my, my first piece for them. It was um, a whole thing on William Castle at the Film Forum, and I've been writing for for Dread Central ever ever since, and covering uh, film festivals all over the place, and uh, and doing tons of interviews and and um, listicles, you name it.
1: Amazing. Yeah, we're big fans of yours here. And so much so that we've actually had you on the podcast before. People might remember that you joined us for a Stephen King episode when we talked about his short story, The Jaunt, which is like my probably my favorite short story ever. And today we're doing HP Lovecraft. So we've kinda narrowed you into a bit of a literature niche. How do you feel about that?
2: I love I love this and, and it's it's gonna be inspire me for for future episodes, hopefully. But it is it is funny to talk about. Um, Stephen King um, and Lovecraft, because a lot of their stories, you know, in one shape or another have been kind of made or at least alluded to. So it's it's nice to find a couple of them that haven't.
1: And there is a lot of like interesting, there's an interesting dynamic between their works. And we're going to get to that a little bit down the line. Today, I want to tell everybody that we are going to cover a couple of different subtopics. So we're going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, because there's a lot of baggage and interesting stuff going on there. We are going to talk in detail about At the Mountains of Madness because I forced us to read the entire novella today and we have thoughts. And then, of course, we're going to get to The Moneymaker. We're going to talk about Guillermo del Toro's still unmade adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. Drew, um, would you be okay if we dove into a little bit of history on H.P. Lovecraft?
2: I, I, I can't wait. I, I actually didn't. You probably say this, but I didn't realize that how how destitute he kind of was uh during his <gasps> life.
1: Yeah, he had a really <laughs> I guess that makes sense based on his work, but he's had like a really messed up life that ended unfortunately quite young. This dude was born in Providence, Rhode Island, what a spooky place, and lived a lot of his life in an even spookier place, New England, which, like, am I wrong to say that this is basically the center of American spooky fiction, New England, cuz you got Stephen King and Lovecraft.
2: Yeah, I mean I think with those two powerhouse names, you know, that's almost all you need.
1: And that with all of the lighthouses. I mean, how much spookier can you get?
0: It's true.
1: Uh speaking of spooky, both of this dude's parents were institutionalized. In his young life, which couldn't have been fun for him, sounds traumatic. I don't know, very like Tim Burton character of him. So kind of adds to the whole oeuvre. He was a writer, but during his time alive, wrote mostly just pulp fiction in a lot of like sort of lower class pulp magazines and literary magazines that people didn't really show a lot of respect. Uh, He spent time in New York City. (laughs) <laughs> but and maybe you could speak to this but new york city took like a big toll on his mental health and his financial health i can so totally to-
2: relate to that yeah
1: <laughs> yeah you, you you just said you lived in new york city for what like a good chunk of your life
2: yeah i was in i was in uh, new york for um about 10 years
1: okay so you so you can relate to <laughs> to lovecraft's journey in new york i made it out in better shape though for sure, <laughs> okay it sounds like Well, it seems like once he left, he actually started to produce some of his best work. Once he made it out to New England, he started writing things like The Call of Cthulhu, At the Mountains of Madness, The Shadow Out of Time, and a lot of other really iconic works. He would continue to write until his death of intestinal cancer at the age of 46, which is so young. And throughout his entire life, he was never really able to support himself fully on his work as a writer and as an editor. He was virtually unknown during his entire lifetime and was just published through pulp magazines before his death and then became quite a cult figure after he he passed, which is Always so sad. Did you know that that he, during his his time alive, he was basically unknown and kind of des- just destitute. I thought that he had he had gained
2: some fame before he he passed away. Actually, me um, too, me too. But, me too. but, but yeah, it, it did it did um, take uh, a, a little bit longer. But it, I don't think it was much longer though. Like after which is death.
1: almost like what a bitch to, like you die you're, and then you never know. You never know what the world all of a sudden became super obsessed with you and the huge impact that you had. It's, it's almost like what happens to painters instead of authors. <laughs> yeah. And painters usually have that, you know, tragic sensibilities. He's got it. I'm wondering, Drew, if you could maybe walk us through some of, like, the more well-known or important themes in H.P. Lovecraft's work.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the main thing that everybody knows is cosmic horror and the idea of, you know, cosmicism, which, which is a term that I don't – an ism that I don't really use very often. Um, but it's mm-hmm. the idea that, that argues that humanity is an insignificant part of the universe – and that we could all be killed and crushed and just just obliterated at any moment. <laughs> Do you Which, agree with us? Is that something it, that you align with? It's starting to feel more true lately. Uh, <laughs> oh, but yeah. but um, yeah, yeah, and and I like you know this is like that we're we're just f- very fragile and delicate, and um, mm-hmm. you know just hurtling through space. Um mm-hmm. and that but the term I wanted to talk about the the term cosmic horror a little bit because I think it gets overused a lot. Mm-hmm. Um and it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what it means, but I think people kind of know it when they see it, w- which is ironic because a lot of the cosmic horror and Lovecraft stuff, you don't get to see anything. You just get to um there's very vague descriptions of creatures and the you know, the really um darkest depths of you know, terror um are in, in like the descriptions and they, it's really about what you don't see. Um, but I like the term vastness horror, which I think is like mm. kind of coming around a little bit more because I think that tends to show you that it's a, it's a term that I prefer because it's it's not overused and it's more about the fear of like the, the infinite than a fear of space mm-hmm. yeah do,
1: do you like that term do you like the term vastness horror over cosmic horror? I think I like both I, I see them as I, I see how they are this very similar but i I can also see them as maybe being slightly different things. And vastness horror is something that I think even just by the hearing the word is something I can kind of relate to. I have like uh well we did this episode on the jaunt and and I feel like the jaunt, Stephen King's short story, is like complete vastness horror, almost in like a, a literal way. Yeah, no, I, I
2: I thought that too. Um and obviously, you know, Stephen King was inspired by by Lovecraft as well. But yeah, especially with, when you're talking about the jaunt and, and, uh, the, the teleportation and, and, um, the endless, Mm -hmm. endless amount of time. But I think that's the vastness horror aspect. Yeah. I think that it does have to do with time a little bit and, you know, cosmic horror that Lovecraft does deal with admittedly is, is not really about that. It's really more about, you know, these ancient creatures, you know, and that, that, um, have, have, that we've kind of, uh, you know, come up from the primordial ooze of them in a way, which is <laughs> in, in, in a, the scary thing, the scariest thing to me about cosmic horror and that idea is that it's the, the fact that eventually they want to absorb us again. That's the part that gets mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not that we, I don't care where we came from. You know, that's, that's, I know it's a big question, but I really don't care. But if, but if something wants to
1: um, assimilate me, I'm not down with that. No. Cause we have like no sense of, like, control at that point. It's terrifying. Mm. I think they say it in The Mountains of Madness, but there it, there was some Lovecraft uh, quote out there where he says that there were some, like, great monstrous entities out in the universe that created us either on accident or as, like, a joke. I don't like that. It's always kind of scary.
2: Yeah, we can maybe get that a little bit later how that, you know, Ridley Scott kind of played around with that, you know, and...
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know Prometheus. It's funny that you brought up Prometheus because it actually plays a bit of a dramatic role in why Guillermo del Toro's adaptation of this right. film didn't happen, which is classic Ridley Scott being a dick. Uh, <laughs> and I'm excited for that to get sort of braided into this, but definitely.
2: But I think um, you're right. like if if, if we talk about more themes, I think it's mm-hmm. I, I guess they they all they all kind of come together a little bit, but uh, yeah, it is definitely the fear of the unknown. Um, and you did, you did mention new England earlier too, that uh, another kind of Stephen King parallel is that his, you know, his works were largely set in this fictionalized version of new England, um, the mm-hmm. Arkham kind of trilogy and, and the, some mm-hmm. of the things that he did. Um, and, mm-hmm. and and also that, yeah, he believed that the West was in decline during his lifetime, which I didn't, I, I didn't really um, realize that. Uh, so I, w- I, th- I thought that was, that was an interesting kind of, kind of um, idea that I think he kind of I don't know if that's in his in in, in the mountains of madness specifically but I think uh, in his writings and in his notes and talking about the work I think that came out a little bit more
1: yeah definitely and there's some stuff in the mountains of madness where we learn about the was it the ancient the ancient beings and how their their civilization kind of did crumble eventually and they and and some of them retreated to the sea there's some interesting stuff in there about downfalls in a way but pretty vague yeah it's kind of what happened
2: um it's yeah it's it's they don't really get into that mystery i guess as much but they yeah they do they do find out that there was a there was a lost civilization there that was kind of com- completely destroyed
1: too mm-hmm um, I'm wondering, before we get into, like, the more nitty-gritty of this person, H.P. Lovecraft, if we could talk a little bit about our personal relationships with him, with his work, with even just him as, like, <sighs> this figure in the horror zeitgeist. Um, when it, For me, personally, like, I've always been very fascinated with the idea of Lovecraft, but I've never really dipped into reading him that much. I read a few of the short stories before today and kind of had a hard time, kind of had a hard time focusing, kind of had a hard time like getting into it. And today when we read The Mountains of Madness was the first time where I really kind of absorbed a longer work of his. Um, Definitely fascinated by the fear of the unknown. I'm definitely fascinated by cerebral horror. Um I'm wondering like what how do you feel about Lovecraft? What's been your journey with him?
2: Well, I I like the idea of that kind of the, you know, horror theater of the mind a little bit, you know, where he's I think he does a really good job of like creating these very scary concepts and but I don't know if it's exactly like amazing world building. I think he does like a like an insane amount of descriptions and I think sometimes that can be a little bit challenging to read. And the fact that it's, it was written in the thirties, you know, he just, he just has a different way Mm -hmm. of uh, writing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of hard to adjust to. And, you know, he didn't have much of an editor. I think, I mean, there are like, there are versions of at the mountains of madness that, you know, there are sentences added here and there, like some of the ones I think if it, I think it originally uh, came out in weird tales. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's been sentences and things kind of added over time, you know, that he's, he's kind of worked on. Um, but yeah, could I mean, he used an editor. Yeah, I think so. But, um, I actually heard the term Lovecraftian before I read Lovecraft, mm-hmm. you know, I, and it was really in, in films that I became aware of him, you know, where it's like, you know, I heard, I knew Stuart Gordon. I was watching all that all the time, of course, um, with like from beyond and reanimator and everything. So, um, uh, that's when I really started hearing the term Lovecraftian and then the term cosmic horror comes later. And then the man, H.P. Lovecraft, I think I've heard more about recently too, um, just because of his, some of his views and uh, mm-hmm. him kind of possibly being, or definitely being racist at some point and then maybe changing his, his, his views later on. But mm-hmm. um, that's one thing that's interesting about trying to make his work or um, into into a film and, Getting other filmmakers that can take these ideas and, you know, they don't have to talk about the man or those or some of those ideas that maybe were embedded in his stories.
1: Definitely, I feel like he is this infamous figure that we hear a lot about as like young horror fans. And I think some of the information is good and some of it is a little sensationalized. I remember hearing a lot about Cthulhu and Mm -hmm. like hearing that was always a big touchstone of of horror. A lot of yeah, old gods. This, yeah. And like the idea of a scary monster that's so grand and so vast and so unknowable that if you look at it, you just go completely insane, which that's beautiful. Like yeah. what a great, like what a great idea. Yeah, you're so, right.
2: It's, it is beautiful. It really is. It's not, yeah. it's, it's frightening, but it's, it, that's kind of why it's beautiful.
1: Yeah. And like the idea of these giant monsters in outer space that like are just so indifferent to our puny, Like terrible existences. That's always kind of spooky. I remember hearing as a kid that, like, the big themes in Lovecraft were like fish and vaginas. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) really? Now I'm thinking that that's not (laughs) so much the case. I don't think like the fear of women or the fear of like the woman's body. Maybe it is in other works. I don't know. But that was always something I remember hearing that it was like, he had a bad relationship with his mom, and now there's like all this weird vaginal themes in his works. That's interesting because, like, I kind
2: of had, was aware of that too, but it was also around the time that Alien came out, and it was H.R. Geiger, who was definitely obsessed with vaginas, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, in his work. So you start seeing that in Alien, which is an obviously, you know, big uh, mm-hmm. it takes it takes a lot from 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 Lovecraft, but um, yeah. And then, then speaking of Del Toro, I mean, he's got that amazing full like, um. Full scale, you know, wax figure or whatever it is at a, at a Bleak House at his home. That's like, um, H. P. Lovecraft at a desk writing, I believe.
1: Oh, I was wondering if you'd ever seen the uh, Guillermo del Toro art exhibit at home with monsters. I know they toured a bunch of different cities with it.
2: I didn't get to see it, unfortunately, but um, I I definitely picked up Cabinet of Curiosities, his his book that came out um, by Matt Solar sites that came out a yes. few years back. So that's got that's got a, mm-hmm. a big section on Bleak House, if, if I recall.
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, and there's, like, yes, yeah, so you get to like walk through like some, I believe, bleak house re- like reconstructions. And my favorite room is and I think it is a room in his house where it's this beautiful, like, super gothic Victorian office, like writing office. But all of the windows are false installations of thunderstorms. So it's this, like <laughs> this like big Gothic Victorian library. Where it's always like a dark thunderstorm outside, right. I and it's... Is, is, is that supposed to be his rain room? Yes, I, the like, rain room. Yes. yeah, like, I remember
2: I remember being at South by and Gamble del Toro was um, interviewing Ryan Gosling and uh, I, I was uh, covering that for um, mm-hmm. another another site, but uh, I was just really surprised when Ryan Gosling talked about the rain room, and I think at that point I'd never heard about it before, so I thought it was pretty incredible.
1: That's cool. We covered um, the Never Made Guillermo del Toro Haunted Mansion movie um, on this podcast at one point. And I I think, yeah, he was supposed to star in it. He was supposed to star Ryan Gosling. I really wish I could have seen that.
2: They could have just shot at his house. They could have just shot at Bleak House. remember (laughs) that they, like during the... um, I can't even remember which fire it was. I was I lived in San Francisco for a while too, so I was very, I've been around the fires a lot. To, um, but mm-hmm. Bleak House was in danger of burning down. Do you remember this? Like a couple of years ago. No. And every it's just every horror fan on Twitter was you know concerned just in general for all the acreage that was going up, but yeah. um, they were specifically concerned about Del Toro's house. And he he kept kind of updating fans and saying that the you know the fires kind were kind of licking the building a little bit, but uh, luckily luckily nothing was harmed.
1: I didn't see that conversation that's no. that sounds Lovecraft really fascinating, okay
2: yeah, Lovecraft <laughs> yeah, is not yeah.
1: Her. God, I'd love to visit that house. God oh, it's just I really relate to this man I, I i I would really just love to become him at one point, and I could see it happening, so please pray for me um so drew i would you be comfortable if I dig a little bit into why Lovecraft is such a problematic fave? No, I want to get into it. Um, so I guess why should like why is it important to discuss his his well documented racism? In my opinion, it's so that we get to talk about him. Because as maybe I haven't read that much Lovecraft in my life, I do consider myself to be really fascinated with him as a figure, really fascinated with his work, and ultimately, you know, a fan. So I just want to be able to have conversations about him. But I do think it's important when we do that to be honest about his pretty terrible racism. And I think that's what we're about to jump into now. So I think it's well known that Lovecraft is, or was a fairly racist individual and had left a lot of um, written racist remarks against people that were not white. And there has been some scholarly argument that, These were just the common attitudes in America around that time, specifically in New England, which I find interesting. I'm not sure why New England would be more racist than other parts of the country. That's just something I have to accept, I suppose. But either way, everyone was racist. He was racist. It kind of doesn't make up for it. Um, He was allegedly even semi pro Hitler in the early days of the Nazi Party, and again, this was not specific to Lovecraft. I think the majority of Americans were um, at least interested in what Hitler was having to say until he, you know, started becoming more and more violent. Um, and once, and, and it is said that once H.P. Lovecraft got word that uh, there was violence against Jews in Germany, that he completely changed his mind but the fact that at any point he like thought this guy had something to say i think is a little indicative to what was going on in lovecraft's head at the time uh he showed sympathy to like uh cultures that were not white but that like expressed interest in like joining the great melting pot he is like kind of famously married a jewish woman to which he uh unquote described as being well assimilated
2: when you say well assimilated like that that just comes off like you know like they she she, she did an acceptable job of of mm-hmm. you know, appearing white so that, that yeah that's that's a that's a dicey term
1: oh it's very dicey it's terrifying but, it, like, it showed that he, like, he was okay with you if you're not white or not Christian, as long as you, like, adapted to the white Christian lifestyle, which is kind of like the American melting pot system still to this day. So, it's, as we were saying, very, very problematic, although it is believed that as he grew older and as he traveled more, his views on ethnicity somewhat moderated but as we said, he died really young. And so there wasn't really that much of a journey that he could have made. Like it's it's unfortunate. He was like clearly just a very racist individual. And that was a to some degree a product of his time. But what's so disappointing is that like he has all of this on record. So product of his time or not, it's just proven that this dude was racist as hell. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible not to look at his work through that lens at least to some degree. and it kind of like it's a little bit of a rain on the parade. but you know it's it, it's important to to remember.
2: Yeah, and that's one thing about being a writer. You write a lot and so all of your views are right there for everybody to take a look at.
1: Okay. Do you ever think about for, for like for us that like there's just so much of our thoughts on the internet that like, you know, hopefully they they all age well.
2: Yeah, luckily, I, mean, I guess you know a lot of them aren't too too evergreen because it's mostly covering you know pretty you yes. know, recent things in the world of horror and genre and stuff. So you know, once it's read, it's it's uh, you know it's somewhere somewhere out there in the in the uh, the outer space of the internet. <laughs>
1: yeah, but there's a lot of it. Drew, I kind of want to talk about the adaptations of his work. Do you think that you could uh, maybe run us through some of the more well-known film adaptations of HP Lovecraft's work?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think there's like direct ones and there's ones that are kind of, you know, uh, other filmmakers wanting to do Lovecraft and realizing a studio wouldn't let them, which Mm -hmm. sounds familiar. uh, (laughs) And so they had to kind of um, throw these ideas into like more of a big budget kind of um, shell. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, Reanimator for sure, um, From Beyond is the big one. Those are the two, like from the, that's when like every kid in the 80s knew who Lovecraft was at that point. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna, I mean, they... Those are two classic, classic films that don't look like anything else, and the, the people had never seen creatures like that. And it came at, a, at at the kind of golden age of creature effects, I think. Yeah, um, for practical effects, I don't think a lot of people would argue with that. And um, the most recent one is is Nick Cage's Color Out of the Space, and talk about a you know problematic uh, person. I mean, you know, the, yeah, yeah, filmmaker now is is unfortunately very, very problematic. Uh, Richard Stanley. Um, yeah, and then Dagon. Dagon is one that. um When do you remember seeing Dagon for the first time? Because I was like a kid, and and
1: then I, I was a child about it. Yeah, it was a direct-to-video moment in like 2001, so I must have been like 10.
2: Yeah, i, I that's one that I need to need to revisit again. Which is glad I'm. I'm so glad we're talking about Lovecraft because there's a few things. Like there's now more of a book list and more of a movie list too.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, that never I ends. remember Dagon being a kind of a direct-to-video moment, if I recall specifically about fish people. <laughs> That's all I can remember.
2: Yeah, there's a, the one that I liked a lot that seemed to be on a lot um, was Necronomicon. That was with David Warner. It was a kind of an anthology that, and Brian Yuzna produced that too. So they just they used the Book of the Dead and um, that, and then and then of course they did they did. Um, I was going to talk about this later with like mm-hmm. you know some better. I just like some of our favorite stories, but the Dunwich Horror. Um, mm-hmm. that that was um Yeah, I think the the Dun- Dunwich Horror in 1970, that was like Dean Stockwell and Ed Bakley mm-hmm. and Sandra D, I think.
1: Oh, really? That's interesting. I, I'd like to see some more major ones, but maybe there's a reason that we haven't been able to. A, maybe it's just like unadaptable and that's okay. And B, like maybe this isn't the right era to be adapting a mega racist. (laughs) Like maybe it's just not exactly the right
2: time. Well, that's, what's nice about other filmmakers kind of going and trying to tackle his work a little bit, you know, like Lovecraft County, you know, and Lovecraft country. And then I think even Barbara Crampton herself is, she's been trying to get a Lovecraft project off the ground. Um, that I don't think we can kind of reveal who the director, maybe that she's talking to about, about it. Um, but I think they're trying to get that, that uh, going. Uh, so hopefully that'll happen. Cause she's the perfect person to, you know, pr- produce uh you know, a Lovecraft adaptation.
1: Interesting. Before we move on into talking at the mountains of madness, is there any other Lovecraft adaptations or even just works inspired by his stuff that you think we need to touch base on?
2: I mean, I think you have to talk about the, the thing in, in alien, uh, a, a little bit but i think everybody already i think people that are listening to this podcast i think mm-hmm. already know that um but a carpenter did kind of famously work in the antarctica I- idea and i mean this it goes straight into um in the mouth of madness mm-hmm. um of of going and investigating kind of another trying to find out what happened to another group or another civilization or something that happened um and then discovering the same horror that they discovered um that that setup is is at the mountains of madness and it's been in a lot of sci-fi movies, a lot of horror movies. Um, and it, it, it's, that's definitely like, maybe not the origin, but it's pretty close of that kind and of just, setup.
1: Yeah. And just before we jump into At the Mountains of Madness, the idea of Antarctica is just not something that ever particularly struck me as interesting. I mean, the thing is fantastic and a classic. Uh, and I just like, I've never really thought about it as you know, a horror trope or as a horror space. But when you're starting to list these locations that that summarize the fear of the unknown, you have the depths of the ocean, you have the, like, the trenches of outer space, and then, of course, Antarctica makes sense as something to belong on that list, especially if you consider the fact that when H.P. Lovecraft was really fascinated with Antarctica, that continent had not been explored yet. It was still, like, uh, literally this continent of the unknown, which gives this book that we're about to talk about even more weight. This idea that there's this complete frozen continent on our planet that nobody has explored and anything could be out there. Pretty chilling, and I, I guess pun unintended.
2: Yeah, that's 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 true. Yeah, it, you 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 definitely think like what ancient thing might might be down there frozen <laughs> for a long time, you know? Yeah, um, but it is interesting though. I mean, like Lovecraft was obviously aware of of Bird's expedition and to the South Pole, and that was mm-hmm. late twenties, like nineteen twenty nine.
1: Mm-hmm. So very I aware. Mean, I think yeah. he was actually like a little obsessed with with that, and 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 I think listed that by name in the Mountains of Madness. Right. So. And then, then um, no one
2: even like returned. I think I don't think anybody went back to the, <laughs> um, the South Pole until I think, uh, in the fifties. I, I think that's because of World War II. Um, I guess they just kind of stopped uh-huh.
1: explorations like
2: that. It's
1: kind of like time. the moon. Once you get there, like, do you really? Does it, do right. you really need to go we, back?
2: We found so, it. We planted a flag. What, what do you mean? What do you mean? There's,
1: yeah, there's not a lot going on over there. I do want to visit Easter Island at some point in my life. I don't know why it just seems so remote. That, like, I kind of, like, feel drawn to go. Which I think is pretty close to down there.
2: Well, we can go to t- together if you want.
1: <gasps> Let's go. We can set up, yeah. like, Dread Easter Island. <laughs> a-, a little office down there. Drew, would you be okay if I jumped into a bit of a seminar on H.P. Lovescraft at the Mountains of Madness? Absolutely. So this book, or I guess a novella, is... Uh, or was originally serialized into a group of short stories in the magazine Astounding Stories back in 1936. Right. Astounding uh, Stories, that was it. Yeah. Um, the basic gist of it is that you got this group of um, explorers going down to Antarctica, and there's uh, it doesn't go well. The leads of the story are... Dyer and Danforth. One is a scientist or a professor, and the other is a graduate student. And uh, well, it doesn't go great for them. Um, It's all about Lovecraft's interest in Antarctic exploration. As we were saying, this continent had not really been totally fully mapped out until the 1930s. And so, like, this was ripe for him to sort of dig into thematically. Uh, there are things that occur in at the Mountains of Madness that recur in other Lovecraft stories. I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation, but um, we have these like formless, iconic creatures by the name of Shoggoths. Am I saying that horribly wrong?
2: I always think Shoggoth, but it's not. It's not something you. The, the actual gods and Shog- creatures are not are, are not things that you hear out loud a lot.
1: You know? No, and I think it's probably like unpronounceable and if you pronounced it properly you'd go crazy. That's right. <laughs> so hopefully um, we
2: both just pronounce it incorrectly.
1: I hope so. Or oh, <laughs> but you know what? What an iconic way to lose our minds. That's true. Um so yeah, you'll you'll and and you also learn about like uh, Cthulhu lore in this, like his star what fo- I forgot I forget what the name of Cthulhu's people are called. Something about some form of star people of some kind. That right. eventually retreat to the ocean. So that's also touch base here. So his extended universe is uh, is definitely tightened with this book in a lot of ways. So that's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to try to do this. And I was going to maybe tr- going to make you do it. But do you think it would be absolutely atrocious if I tried to give a brief summary of what happens in this book?
2: Yes, give it your best shot. And I'll, I'll try to. I'll try to jump in too.
1: Okay, when I, when I mess up, can you please correct me? Because I, I did my best to understand what was going on in this book, but I'm not fully literate, and so I'm only about halfway there. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Okay, so at the Mount of Madness is this story that's narrated in the first person by a geologist professor. His name is William Dyer, and uh, he wants more than anything to stop this very well publicized expedition that's going to happen to Antarctica so the the device or the narrative setup is professor dyer explains to this group of scholarly figures about this horrible thing that happened to him on a previous expedition to Antarctica where he ran into some real spooky ancient ruins and this like you know mountain range of of like truly unknowable horrors and evils. And so he starts to explain the story. And basically he's going down to Antarctica with this like really big group of people. There's like, you know, anyone that you would need on this expedition, you've got from from graduate students to scientists to like who whatever you need it, they're there. And so they're down there and there's this point in their journey where a smaller group of professors sort of go off on their own and and sort of explore and leave the main group behind. And when they do, they come across 14 prehistoric life forms that they cannot describe and are completely unidentifiable as plants or animals or some like unholy marriage of the two. And so there's 14 of these things and they try to bring them back to the main camp. Uh, I believe six of them are intact and a bunch of them seem obviously dead. And so uh, what happens at that point is uh, they go, they end up getting back to the main camp, which is I think where they leave these prehistoric life forms And they find that everybody else, that like all the normies that they left behind Mm -hmm. have been murdered. So there's like a complete bloodbath of all of these men and all of these dogs that they brought along to help. And they're all gone. And so um, the graduate student who is helping Dyer, his name is Dan Forth, they together sort of believe that there is, you know, one man is behind this mayhem there is one body that they can't find i think his name is gedney and and one of his dogs
2: right and they so, think gedney went insane and so they're trying to look yeah yeah, or, like, or, or his
1: dog did yeah maybe the dog went insane and killed everybody <laughs> so they're like i guess gedney wasn't doing so good and just killed everybody and left like that's the only thing that makes sense but at the same time they also notice that these prehistoric life forms are missing like the ones that were intact are gone and they're and and have like kind of set up this weird ritualistic looking star figure and they're like well that's not good get knees up to no good at all and so they get into an airplane and they cross these mountains which i think were known as the mountains of madness
2: and right and then the, then the airplane was the, the dornier air, airplane that was from miskatonic so the, anyway,
1: oh. the miskatonic institute okay how is it going so far? Am I making sense? Yes. No. You are. You absolutely are. Oh, yeah, it's just thank, thank God.
2: <laughs> yes. Like, yes
1: just... I wasn't one hundred percent sure fun. if I if I absorbed all this properly, but I definitely enjoyed the journey, and I think that's what matters. So yeah, Danforth and Dyer are flying on this airplane that that you that you mentioned, and um, they they find this abandoned, I guess this giant abandoned city. But it's totally unrelatable to, like, anything that they've ever seen in human architecture before. Uh, and and they go and they explore it. And I don't understand why they're like, well, everybody's dead. Let's just do some science. But they do. And they explore this city that's, I, I think, like, really big and vast but empty. And it's totally, like, retro-futuristic. Like, it looks like it's it could have only been designed by, like... Aliens from the future, but with like big stones from the past, kind of is the vibe in my mind. Um, and they're looking through it, and they're starting to like read all these hieroglyphs that they're coming across. And yeah, these a lot hier- of
2: murals, a lot of hieroglyphs for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, 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 which is very convenient that this whole city is just like covered in murals and hieroglyphs. But Let they us give recognize. You the exposition, <laughs> yeah, it, and because it's like not that long of a book, so they kind of had to speed through it somehow, and mm. they notice. That a lot of what they're seeing on these hieroglyphs are, like, recognizable from the Necronomicon, including these lost people that they call the Elder Things. And right. so this is, like, one of the first monsters that we're learning about. And uh, so as they learn more about these Elder Things, we, we learn that, you know, they had this big war with unquote, the star spawn of Cthulhu and these other big monsters called the Migo, And um, shit went down with all of these scary monsters back in the day. And that's when they realized that um, the elder things are what they discovered. So when they discovered those like prehistoric, gross plant or animal things, those were elder things. And the ones that they uncovered that were intact came to life and killed everybody in their base camp for some reason or another. Yeah, I think
2: the elder thing is almost. I think Del Toro, I don't know if he was the first person to say it, but they're almost like cucumbers. You know, that's almost what they look like. These like, huge, bizarre, yes. like, pulsating <laughs> like cucumbers, you know, which it's doesn't so sound gross. that scary when you say that. Yeah.
1: I, but it kind of does sound scary when you say that because, like, you can just see like pods and pus and weird bullshit that my brain does not want to have to like piece together, which I think is kind of the whole point. And so. Okay, so we've got Danforth and Dyer, and they're learning about these elder things, and they realize that they've, like, unearthed a bunch of them, and it killed all of their friends. And they decide to continue exploring further into the Mountains of Madness and this ancient city that is, like, really messed up and scary and, like, just not giving them good vibes whatsoever, not at all. And they keep going And there's like even more mountains that are even bigger and scarier than the Mountains of Madness. And I think they learn about this unknowable evil that exists even deeper into into the realms. That the Elder Things were scared of and that are just like the truly biggest bad that you could ever encounter. Stay clear of them.
2: There's always a bigger fish.
1: There's always, especially with H.P. Lovecraft. Um... And so they find themselves, for some reason, maybe they're drawn psychically. Who's to say? Deeper into this like subterranean region that is continuously covered in these murals and um, these hieroglyphs, and they keep reading as they go along, and they find that that all the elder things were killed in this terrible struggle, and um, yeah. So this is where the oogie boogie. Really happens. The Oogie Boogie. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, this is where Oogie Boogie really shows himself. And they're deep into this like ice tunnel where they're learning all this stuff. first, we we learn about the scary elder things, and we're like, oh, those are the scary monsters. They're the the bad ones. No, 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 no. They are not. They're like, they're fluffy ponies in comparison to what we're about to meet. And this is where they meet what they identify. And we talked about it earlier. As the shogoths? is that what mm-hmm. we were calling them? Yes. And it is this ginormous, bubbling, pulsing black mass of goo that is sort of like unknowable in its horror. And I'm almost done. I swear. I think the oh, you're whole. You're doing fantastic.
2: Deal- There's also the thing that the description too is also that they have these kind of moving eyes that are happening constantly. Yes, they're also, they're I, also feeding off of these. Like this is where. it it's almost comical and could maybe have been left out, but that, that when the Shogoths are actually feeding on these like six foot tall penguins that they've blinded, I guess, so they're easier prey. <laughs> the and so they're kind of just using them and they just kind of roll over them and, and and kill them at will.
1: Oh, yeah. There's all of these giant six foot tall penguins with no eyeballs that are just like livestock, I guess, for the Shogoths. And they're so sad. And I, and giant, I actually want one.
2: Uh, yeah, well, they're actually real. Like giant penguins are real. I mean, there was there was one, there was like a like a, a twenty five million year old penguin that was discovered in New Zealand, like in the seventies. That was over four feet tall, so not quite six feet, but I mean, oh that, my god, was, still might have been I, growing.
1: I love him. I want a giant penguin. He can keep his eyeballs though.
2: Next from P- Pixar,
1: yeah, giant penguins no eyes. <laughs> I think, and I think something we missed about the Shoggoths is that they were originally used. As a tool to help right. these entities build this, like, giant city back before we had lovers and pulleys and bullshit. Like, there were these entities that could take any shape, any form, any mind thought. They were just this, like, thing that could help you do stuff. But, of course, because they were so powerful, they sort of found independence and, like, killed everybody else and kind of took control and they sound really scary and gross. So, um, yeah, and, I don't think and you,
2: that you don't that their, them. their essence, right. Their um, that kind of prim- primordial space, um, ooze that they have is, is, is hinted that it's, it's kind of the, uh, can be used to create, um, us even potentially.
1: Yes. Which is like gross. The idea that this like nasty space ooze is the whole reason that we exist in the first place. Mm. Um, but it would make a lot of sense, ultimately.
2: We're all not stars. We're we're a shoggoth. Yeah,
1: yeah. Moby. Um. So, <laughs> <laughs> so these two, Dyer and Danforth, they're running away from this shoggoth who's like oogie spooky eyeball tentacle green arms are chasing them, and they get into their little airplane and they escape. They f- they get out of there, and which is seems improbable, and they're flying away, and they're flying off in the distance. And for some reason, Danforth decides that he wants to, like, turn around and see what is waiting for them in the vast distance behind them. And I think what he sees, correct me if I'm wrong, is not the Shogoth like, becoming all big and scary, but what he ultimately sees is this unknowable evil that has been hinted at a number of times through the hieroglyphs on their journey. That this, like, ginormous, completely unknowable evil that once you see it, you completely lose your mind. And that is what happens to Danforth. He looks back and sees something that just immediately causes him to go insane. And that's kind of how this story ends.
2: Yeah. And that's the thing that really sticks with you, right? I mean, with, with, and and when you think of Lovecraft, too, is like this unknowable thing that, that can, that can drive men uh, crazy. And that's, that's, that's frightening. Definitely. Um, when,
1: and it does um, kind of, sh- sh- yeah,
2: I'm listening. And it, it does have, you know, I guess, biblical references too. I mean, you're, um, or even like Greek mythology where you see Danforth mm-hmm. going insane is by looking back uh, and seeing something truly evil. Like that's like the Greek tragedy of Orpheus. Yeah. you know where um, Hades instructed him not to look back I mean, when he, when he uh, rescued his wife, mm-hmm. um, wife mm-hmm. from hell and then I think when he did, like she just dropped dead. Um, yes. So do, I they, think that do they
1: mention that reference by name in this book? I feel like maybe they they do. I think I think so. Yeah. Um,
2: it's hard to remember because there's there's so much exposition on this. I like think I have any criticisms of it. The ideas are so incredible, but it's the, the it's just overly descriptive. Um, but in that way, it it becomes meditative. You know, the mm-hmm. way you're reading it, um, it's a really hypnotic kind of writing that. Does kind of drill down into you while you're reading it, and I think that is a, a kind of intentional, uh, and it's and it does make those little reveals when they happen hit um, a little deeper.
1: I'm wondering if you don't mind, like, what was your impression of the elder things? Like, what did they look like to you? Were they good? Were they evil? Were they like neutral? Like, what what, what was the deal with them? Because I have a bit of a question mark around them in my mind.
2: Yeah, I guess you're supposed to. It's supposed to be a little bit of a mystery. But yeah, I mean, I think if what's an interesting parallel between Lovecraft and Del Toro is that they they were both um, Del Toro much more accomplished, but they're both artists, and um, you can see the drawings that Lovecraft had of the Elder Things and what they kind of looked like, and they did look kind of bulbous and strange, and um, you know, uh, not mm-hmm. the, is like not the idea of the designs we think of now, the more tentacled. Um, you know, direction, it was, it was much more of like this kind of strange kind of cucumber thing, I think. So it, it's, <laughs> I think it's interesting that like Del Toro, when, and all, all his prep and the kind of infamous journals that he does, um, and all the drawings that he does, um, you know, that Lovecraft did the same thing. And I don't know if Del Toro was inspired by that, um, to start doing it in the first place, but um, he might have been.
1: And when it comes to this unknown evil at the end, am I right to differentiate that that is different from the Shoggoth?
2: Yeah, I think so. Yes, because I think this, I think the Shogos are just the almost the, minions in a way. They're much more powerful than that. But I think they're, they're a, mm-hmm. I think they're an idea of like they're basically shapeshifters, right? But just like a very um, ancient version of that. So, so is yeah, this I,
1: unnamed I, evil like the guy that built this entire city? Is like this is like his crib, kind of. Is that is that your interpretation of it, or am I off?
2: I don't know. I because I I, I I don't like to think about it um, too much. I, I like I like to I like to just because it because when I <laughs> when when you think about it realistically, um, it's it's not very practical to have an unknowable evil, evil that's 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 building all of this or um, you know can drive any anything insane, especially things that maybe have been created by the Shogoths and these other creatures. So, it, but there is definitely a hierarchy.
1: I have a f- to this. I my mean, one criticism here is that I feel like H.P. Lovecraft suffers a little bit from telling rather than showing. <laughs> like, uh, like it is like y- you can say all like, mm-hmm. you want that something is this big unknowable evil, but like, I don't know. I need a little more than that. I want to like come to the conclusion that this thing is a big unknowable evil on my own. Like, you don't need well, to just like push true. it in my face. You know.
2: I guess if, it's like if you want to if you want to personalize it though with Lovecraft. I mean, you did mention that his. His parents, you know, went insane, uh, or they <laughs> at least they were crazy. So the unnamed evil might be, mm-hmm. you know, going insane, um, kind of personified in a way. You know, the, That's and, right. I, and nobody really knows why you go crazy. You just do.
1: Especially back then when, like, going crazy just meant you were on your period or something. But Exactly. We didn't really know much about the human brain or the body that much. We were, <laughs> no, we were, we were getting there all. We just, like, brought out the leeches and that was that. But, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, I do like it though. I do like it is spooky and it is making you think and it is making you draw your own conclusions and I mean I was I was scared when I was reading this. It did scare me um more and than I was the, expecting it to.
2: And all the all the beats are there. I mean with um you have to remember it really it is an adventure story. It's just a uh, mm-hmm. so I can see how it can be a a, a pretty incredible horror adventure I think I lost um you. Oh, there you are. especially um if it was directed by Del Toro. And oh, speaking of, I, I could make, I could really imagine how it could be a great horror adventure.
1: Oh, big time! Would you be ready for us to sort of dip into Del Toro's unmade adaptation? Definitely. Before we dig into all of the facts about this film that never actually got made, I'm wondering if you have a favorite work of Guillermo del Toro. It's probably Cronos. Oh, um, interesting. I, I think,
2: f- for me, um, I think if all of Del Toro's English language films were in Spanish, I would like them more. Um, okay. I think, and I and I, I, I enjoy all of them, but um, you know, uh, stuff like Kronos just hits a lot harder for me. Um, and I, I don't know if he's like quite made a um, an English uh, masterpiece uh, like that, but I think he has in this Sp- in his
1: own language. I you could be right. His first language, I should say. I think it's a very fair argument to make. Pan's Labyrinth is just, you know, one of the most beautiful, like horror fantasy hybrids ever made. And Incredible, yeah. We, I think we like take advantage, not take advantage of it, but like, you know, it's it's always there. But I, I'm gonna have a hot take here, and my hot take yeah. is, I don't know if I, a hot take is just that I like something, but I, I, I liked. I loved Nightmare Alley so much more than, like, everyone else I know. Like, every, everyone that I know and respect were actually quite cool on Nightmare Alley. But it, if I'm going to be fully honest with you, it was, like, hands down my favorite movie of 2021. There was just something. I remember reading your,
2: your review. Uh, that oh. You were definitely into it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I really was. And there was just I, I was, something... too. I was, too. Who were you? Because... A lot of people that I, like, really, really respect what they think um, were just not into it. And it just wasn't working for them. But the way that he handles film noir was just, like, just so pitch perfect. Like, he handles every trope there and every beat there with, like, with such precision and specificity. And ultimately, I find it to be, like, really scary and really unsettling and just so Beautiful. I love that movie. Just love it.
2: Yeah, and and what what happens at the end? You know, I mean, nothing it's, good. It's not to not to spoil it completely, but it is it, there is kind of a uh, a crazed moment. You know, for sure. Uh, That's right. It Could happen. Be a little bit of a, a parallel, but yeah, I think just just Nightmare Alley r- really works for me because of the circus aspect to it, and I think mm-hmm. it. Sure, I know Kate Blanchett was saying that she was really attracted to. Uh, the circus aspect of it and the camaraderie of the carnival um, mm-hmm. because it reminded her of the theater and she's like incredibly oh. passionate about the theater and runs a the theater.
1: Ironically, she got to participate in none of those scenes, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, true. she, she's definitely one of my favorite parts of that film. So now that we've gotten a little bit about how we feel about GDT and a little bit about who he is out of the way, um, would you be okay if I gave a little bit of a seminar on his adaptation? ...of At the Mountains of Madness. Yes. Go ahead. So, it's been about 15 years now that Guillermo del Toro has been working to adapt At the Mountains of Madness. It has been greenlit by multiple studios, it has been rejected by multiple studios... ...and for some reason or another has just been impossible to get off the ground. Initially, Warner Brothers turned down this project in the late 2000s because it was just way too high budgeted for an R-rated movie, specifically an R-rated movie that did not feature a romance of any kind. And Del Toro has gone on record saying that like, it is absolutely counterproductive to put a romance or insert a romance into Lovecraft's work. It just cannot be done. And I think that, I mean, listen, I haven't read that much Lovecraft, but I, I agree. Like, I just, I, it would just be such a, a bad move. Um, so, even though Universal initially turned down the project, they would sign on to it eventually with the contingency that Tom Cruise was going to star. And I think this is something that kind of makes sense. Tom Cruise is like, the ultimate action hero of a generation. And this is a big story with a lot of action involved. And, you know, I think it could have worked, but because Guillermo del Toro refused to censor any of his vision and there was an estimated $150 million budget, things started to crumble. Um, One of the first, signs that this project was not going to happen was back in 2012 and it was sort of known at the time that At the Mountains of Madness was going to be Guillermo del Toro's next project but it was revealed through Guillermo del Toro's social media channels that Ridley Scott's movie Prometheus had to come out first. That for some reason or another because they were so similar in theme uh, that Prometheus and Ridley Scott's movie sort of had to take, I don't know, Hollywood priority and it had to come out first. And I forget what he said exactly, but it just reeked to me of Ridley Scott being a little bit of a bully, which he, I don't know, has been historically on other projects. And so I found that to be kind of sad.
2: Yeah, I mean, Ridley Scott's, you know, um, what happened with with, uh, Neil Blomkamp's Alien mm-hmm. uh, continuation. That was that's definitely one that um, that sticks out a little bit. But um, I, th- I, th- I think Del Toro said about it that it just the endings were too similar. Oh. Um, the, the endings of Prometheus and his his ending at the time, which I'm, if it gets made, I'm sure he'll, he'll um, rewrite um, mm-hmm. and probably not have the same set pieces and large set pieces that he did. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that was it. Was just the endings were too close.
1: Um, giant donut chasing after Charlize Theron that is a specific (laughs) ending that you cannot do twice.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's because both movies were expensive, that's why, and they they were (laughs) were a little similar.
1: Yes, and definitely, you know, as you were saying earlier, the whole Alien, H.R. Geiger, Lovecraft vibe, definitely Venn diagrams a lot also. Mm -hmm. So two big esoteric outer space movies that probably shouldn't have happened at the exact same time. Yeah, and Del
2: Toro even, I mean, it's been... Twenty years or something, because I think he was even trying it right after Kronos. I mean, he he did a mm-hmm. wrote a, like set during um the new world, like the conquest of the new world with um, conquistadors um, going to the Mayan ruins and then finding like a lost city underneath the ruins.
1: Cool. It's such just such a perfect project for Del Toro. The way just hearing that out loud is just like I want to see this. Mm-hmm. Can I give you a quote from Del Toro that he delivered to IndieWire in twenty twenty? Yeah. So about the project and about this adaptation, he says, it's difficult to tackle. We had James Cameron as a co-producer with me, and we had Tom Cruise to star, and we thought we were going to get it made, and it just it didn't happen. These are not decisions you make. Most of us filmmakers, we exist in a world that moves above our pay grade. People think that our careers is a series of decisions. Our career is a series of accidents happening with your decisions on top you don't decide to do one movie instead of another Oh, it breaks my heart This yeah, poor man a nice
2: inside into the industry
1: it, to- uh, it totally is mm-hmm. um and it's true like and he says it you know eventually he did get to make hellboy and hellboy 2 and incorporated some of the lovecraftian themes especially into the second one and he was just like talking about how he was just grateful that that movie got made and so as sad as it is that all of his other films didn't You know, the ones that get made are sort of the ones that count. Um, So Guillermo del Toro was featured on Fangoria's podcast, The Kingcast, in 2021, where he gives some updates about the screenplay that he wrote and what direction the film might take if he was continuing it today. So he had to say, the thing about... Oh, no. The thing with mountains is... The screenplay I wrote 15, or the screenplay I co wrote 15 years ago is not the screenplay that I would do now. I need to do a rewrite. Not only to scale it down somehow, but because back when I was trying to bridge the scale of it with elements that would make it go through the studio machinery. Um, And I think what he's trying to say, or I think what he is saying here, is that at the time he had to make certain sacrifices to establish a big budget movie in Hollywood, you know, sort of like I was mentioning earlier with maybe putting in a romance or just doing things to a ap- to appease the shadowy overlords, but he continues I could not
2: imagine a romance. I could not imagine no, a romance. No, my god,
1: it. me neither. But you know if, if it was <laughs> made in 2012 with Tom Cruise, there would have been a romance in it if it had gotten produced. I just like yeah. it would have mm-hmm. happened. Yeah, you're right. But he goes on to say that I don't think I need to reconcile that anymore. I can go far more esoteric and weirder with a smaller version of it. You know, where I go back to some of the scenes that were left out, some of the big set pieces I designed, for example, I have no appetite for. Like, I've already done this, that giant set piece. I feel like going into a weirder direction. So I think what like what he's saying here is that, you know, now, especially now where you can do a whole lot more with a whole lot less money, like, why not go Netflix and go medium or small budget and go as weird as you want?
2: Yeah, no, I I, I agree. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I know with the recent kind of shakeup up Netflix, but I think they're, they'll be fine, and they're the the deals the deals there. But mm-hmm. um, you know, his I think it's a three or four picture thing that mm-hmm. Del Toro has with Netflix.
1: Yeah, he's done so, a lot with Netflix too, um, with all those like YA series that he's done, the animated right. ones.
2: Um is, and Pin- now- is Pinocchio? Pinocchio is not gonna be Netflix, is it? Yes, it is. The animated it is, okay, the animated yes, it version. Is. Yep. Okay.
1: And then of Netflix. course there's his new series, The Cabinet of Curiosities. hmm Which I will be watching every episode of for sure. And
2: then I think he wants to do <laughs> Monte Cristo. I think he wants to do kind of Monte Cristo.
1: Oh really? I didn't know. I forgot about that. Or I didn't know. Yeah, I believe so. Um, yeah, all but, of these um, are perfect for him. Yeah, Have but you but seen the trailer Madness. yet for um Cabinet of Curiosities?
2: I haven't no, but I'm gonna watch it um, after we're done. That's great. Check I it get out. out the trailer. Cool. Check it and out. I wonder, I, I wonder, you know, Tom Cruise at the like in the afterward of um, the book *Captains of Curiosities*. He says that he still wants to, to do the movie. Oh really? Um, yeah, and he's he's maybe a little closer in age now. I mean, I, I suppose he would play Dyer. Um mm-hmm. and, and maybe if Dyer and Danforth, if they had a relationship, that that could be interesting. Maybe make the ending a little bit more tragic. Who know.
1: Well, it's funny that you say that because I think in the same interview with the King cast, uh, Guillermo del Toro says on Tom Cruise, I think the age has changed now. Tom is fifteen years older, and I think that he'd prefer to go for uh, younger, mostly unknown actors. So, mm. but now that Tom Cruise has like officially retaken over the world with Top Gun, right. like it could be the reason this gets made. Like it could be the green light that he needs.
2: Yeah, he's even he's even bigger. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if uh, that ever actually happens. Um, I really hope it does, so we don't have to revisit this.
1: Me too. Um, the final quote, I believe, from the KingCast that that Guillermo del Toro shared was, "I know a few things will stay from the original screenplay. I know the ending is, I know the ending we have is one of the most intriguing, weird, unsettling endings for me." That's about four horror set pieces that I love in the original script. So, you know, it would be my hope. I certainly get a phone call every six months from Don Murphy going, are we doing this or what? What are you doing next or what? And I say, I have to take the time to rewrite it. So, pretty interesting. A lot of the times on this podcast, it's pretty clear that a movie isn't going to happen. But it just doesn't seem that way with Mountains of Madness. And so, Drew, I guess my first question for you is, are we ever going to see Guillermo del Toro's at the Mountains of Madness?
2: Mm, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's possible. I mean, with the streamers, you know, if it doesn't happen at Netflix, maybe it could happen somewhere else. I mean, there, if, if somebody wants to pull him away at some point. Uh, mm-hmm. But because um, he seems he's already pretty busy over there. Um, but I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I think it'll if if it if it does happen, that'll it, it would have to be another picture or the last one that he did of yeah. the of, of this deal. So mm-hmm. that's still years down the line. Um, he's he's such a brilliant art director. So um,
1: y- yes, it's going to happen. Interesting, interesting. Is it even possible to adapt this properly?
2: No, I think you have to you have to uh, change a lot of things about it. I mean, I think you can stay stay true to the um, descriptions, which I know del toro will um but he's mm-hmm. he'll, he'll probably be in- incorporating a lot of things from lovecraft and maybe just be kind of a super lovecraft movie because nobody's gonna i don't think there's gonna be a lot of lovecraft fans out there that are going to be um getting their pitchforks mm-hmm. out because it's no, not no completely, no, no.
1: Uh, <laughs> i don't think so either no. i think he'll he kind of has carte blanche to do what he wants and i guess my last major question for you is how would we want to see this made do we want to see this as like a $150 million big budget epic at a studio? Do we want to see a small, weirder streamer television series? Like what would be the perfect medium for this?
2: I'd rather, I'd like to see it as a, as a, a long feature, like a good like two and a half hour, three hour feature. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. And, and, and mid range, you know, it doesn't need to be, even be 150 million, but I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not a producer, so uh I, I don't know what he needs uh, to tell whatever story he's going to tell. Um, but I, but I, I think he'll, he should be able to get it. I mean, if the whole, I, the silver lining with some of these streamers is that they can, they can make those kind of dream projects happen. Like the Irishman, for example. Um, so if they can do that for Del Toro, uh, that, that would, um, that would definitely make me continue to subscribe.
1: Me too. And I haven't let go yet. So <laughs> keep me interested. Drew, where can you be found on the internet if you so wish to be found?
2: At uh, Dread Central, and you can find me on Twitter at Drew S. Tenin, um It's T-I-N-N-I-N.
1: Okay, amazing. And we're going to have to have you back for another weird literature episode at some point, because we got you niched.
2: <laughs> I know, I can't wait. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start um, DMing you immediately. I am psyched.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you
2: already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.